All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Children are heading out there for children's church. All right, John chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. As we enter into this passage, I just want to review a little bit with you uh, concerning uh, the style of the the gospel of John. If you remember our introductory sermon, uh, we said a couple things about the gospel of John. We said that it was structured and that it was symbolic. Structured and symbolic. I told you there were uh, four sections in the Gospel of John. The first is the prologue, which we have looked at. Uh, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It introduces John the Baptist, and it introduces uh, jo- Jesus onto the scene. And then there is the second section of the Gospel of John, which is called the Book of the Signs. And you'll notice now that we are entering into that section John tells us that this is the first sign that Jesus did. That word sign is going to be used 16 times in this section that we are entering into. Uh, and then it won't be used again at, at, at from the end of this section until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned to you that it isn't just that he tells about these signs, uh, but in fact, he gives us seven specific signs that sort of serve as the structure of this entire section of the Gospel of John. There are seven miracles, seven signs that Jesus does in this section of John. We see that he says here uh, that this is in verse number 11. He says this was the first sign. And You'll know, too, uh, that in the second miracle that Jesus does, and if you want to look at it, it's in chapter 4, verse 54, uh, John says this is the second miracle that Jesus does. But after that, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't number it anymore. It's as if he's kind of cueing the reader in to say, hey, count. Count how many miracles are. 
here's one, here's two, and then he goes on, and if you count the other miracles, it leads to seven. And he calls them signs. He doesn't just say miracles, which would be a good word. He uses the particular, uh, the particular word signs. A sign is something that's meant to point to something else. In other words, there's some significance to this. Uh, these, are, these miracles have a, a special significance. Each of these miracles were designed to tell us something specific about who Jesus is. These things are meant to attest to his identity in specific ways. So I'll give you a few examples. You remember the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then what does he do? He preaches a sermon in which he says, I'm the bread. Right? Another example that's very clear is when he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. He raises Lazarus from the dead and then he interacts with Mary and Martha and he tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see the, the signification of those miracles? It isn't just that Jesus is doing things that require the power of God. That certainly is part of what's being communicated, but there's something else to these miracles. They are signs. They're teaching us some truth about Jesus Christ. There's a message in the miracles. And I said as well, this leads us, not only is it structured, it's symbolic. I said that there's a lot of symbolism that is used in the Gospel of John. John intentionally uses imagery. He uses allusions. He uses symbols. He uses irony. So that as you read the Gospel of John, the, the more carefully you read it and the more times you read it, you begin to sort of pick up on those things and the, the meaning of the Gospel of John grows ever deeper. Every time you read it, every time you, you're, you're noticing these things, you see that. In particular, John uses, I said, a lot of illusions. And that isn't, I said, remember, it's not illusions like a magician does, like an optical illusion or some trickery. It's, it's an illusion, uh, which means like you're alluding to something. Sometimes people will say something and you can tell, wait a minute, what are you alluding to? There's some, something deeper you're trying to get to. Why don't you tell me what that is? People allude to things. And John does that often in the Gospel of John. He, he alludes, in fact, to the Old Testament many times. And, and again, if we're careful in our reading of that, we'll see this. The, this Gospel then is like a diamond, which the, the more closely that you look at it, the, the more beauty you see. And I'm reiterating all this because these points are going to come into play in the way that we understand this particular miracle. This is the first sign of seven in the book of signs, and it is what I would say a highly symbolic miracle. It's a miracle which at face value points to the divine power of Jesus, yes, but as you contemplate the specific details mentioned, you see that there is a, a richer meaning than we see just merely at the face value. It isn't a di different meaning. It isn't some sort of hidden meaning that's completely opposite or unrelated to the face value meaning. It's just a, a richer, deeper, and fuller expression of the face value meaning. And so in this account, we see Jesus turning water into wine. But that is far from the only transformation that takes place in this story. We see Jesus also turning shame 
into glory. We're going to see him turning contamination into celebration. And we'll see him turning doubt into belief. We're going to focus most on this very first one that Jesus turns shame into glory. Uh, when we come to this story, as you know, if you've read very much, you know that most good stories uh, have some sort of conflict in them, and this one is no different than, than any of those. Uh, usually there's something that arises in the plot. There's some kind of tension or, or problem that, that comes about that has to be resolved. And in this account, the conflict is this. They ran out of wine. They ran out of wine at a wedding, at a celebration. Uh, before we get started, and, and I really hope not to take too much time on this, but I do want to address something of a potential elephant in the room about how we think about wine and, and drunkenness. The problem in this story, for some at least, as you, as you read it, uh, the problem is twofold. First, the fact that Jesus would go to a wedding feast where, where people were drinking and some of them, it seems, were even getting drunk. And, and second, that when the wine ran out, that Jesus would then miraculously provide them with more wine. And we do want to recognize that this is wine, just like it's alcoholic wine that can get people drunk. And, and apparently at these feasts, as is common in any time, there's kind of a wedding celebration and there's alcohol served. People are going to be tempted to drink too much and, and, and often do. And in verse number 10 of this passage, that's the expectation of the master of the feast. He says everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, that word that is translated in, in my translation, drunk freely, is the word for drunk. All right? It's the word for intoxicated. It's the same word that is used in Ephesians 5.18 when Paul directs us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not get drunk with wine. That's the same word. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what about the fact that Jesus went to a, a feast where, where people apparently were engaging in sinful behavior? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, the Scripture is clear that Jesus did not sin. Jesus was not either engaging in or approving of sinful behavior. But what we notice in this story is neither did, even though he didn't engage in that, neither did he isolate himself from those who were sinners. He did not say, he did not feel compelled that he was obligated to say, people are sinning over here, so I'm going to separate myself completely from them. Jesus was not made unclean by him, by his being at a wedding, where some people at least were likely drinking too much. His attendance at such feasts did not make him guilty of sin. In fact, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus brings sinners to repentance. He brings sinners to himself. Now, we need to recognize that we're not Jesus Christ, and we need to use Christian wisdom, and, and there may be times, there are certain parties, certain festivities that, that it may be best uh, for us to abstain from. But we need to see that simply being around sinful people does not necessarily make you a sinner. We can be so cut off from the world by adopting a separationist mindset that we can't properly serve as a light in a dark world. So, Christian, we need to submit to what's clear in God's Word. We don't need to join in sinful behavior. But beyond that, 
Beyond that, we, we need to be sure that we allow the Christian freedom uh, that, that each believer can follow the dictates of his or her conscience, which ought to be shaped by the Word of God. If you're able to go and to celebrate in a way that shines the light of Jesus Christ in a dark place, then, then let us celebrate. If you are tempted to be drawn into the darkness, if you're tempted to be, uh, participate in the sins of others, then it's probably good for you to abstain and for you to practice separation in that. But what about the fact then that Jesus provides wine? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, that this is not an endorsement of drunkenness. God made grapes, which could be cultivated to produce wine. This was part of God's good creation. And just as God supplied wine to man at creation, so now Jesus supplies wine for this wedding. The creator of wine is not at fault if mankind abuses God's good gift. You see, it's the sin of man that takes a good gift of God and uses it Wrongly, That doesn't mean that God is at fault for creating this or that Jesus was at fault for miraculously providing wine. It's our, you, you and I, it's our depraved appetites which, allow, allow, which we allow to grow to sinful proportions that bring this about. Think about it. The same could be said for sex. The same could be said for rest. The same could be said for work. The same could be said for marriage. The same could be said for food. All of those are God's good gifts, which if you allow them an improper place in your life, can, can be cultivated and grow to sinful proportions. But that does not make God sinful, and it does not taint His good gift. It is a good gift. And it's so it is through our inordinate desires and our sin that these things can be tainted by lust, by gluttony, by laziness, and by drunkenness. In each instance, it is the sin of man and not the good gift of God which is at fault. I probably spent too much time on that, but I know for many people, this is, this is a question when you come to this miracle, and it's an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. So let's come back to the setting. What is the setting of this miracle? Well, it said that it's in Cana of Galilee, which is about eight miles north of Nazareth, where, where Jesus was brought up. And D.A. Carson says that the fact that Jesus and his mother were, were both invited, along with Jesus' disciples, uh, probably suggests that the, the wedding was a, a, of a relative or some kind of close friend of the family and weddings were different in that day. In our day, they maybe last for several hours and then everybody goes home. But but in Jesus' day, in, in the ancient Near East here, uh, in uh, this point in time, in this particular location, uh, weddings were could go on for days. For, for several days. And sometimes people would be traveling in. They would get there at different days, at different points at, at time. It, it was a sometimes even a week-long festivity. The groom, or as it's termed here, the bridegroom, had the financial responsibility then to provide for all these people. They're coming and they're traveling in. There are no hotels. People are not going down to Wendy's or Popeye's uh, to, to be fed. Uh, there, there are no restaurants. There are very few hotels. Uh, so it was the, the obligation, the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family 
to, to be sure that, that all the food, all of the wine, everything that would be needed to meet the needs of these guests and to properly celebrate this momentous occasion, it was their responsibility to, to do that and to be sure that those needs were met. Have, have you ever had that responsibility? It's all on you. Make sure we got a bunch of people coming. Make sure there's enough food. That can be a, a very anxious thing. You're like thinking, is there, too, is there enough? We have too much? I, I remember a few years ago, uh, this has only happened once, but we had a, a church meal here, and it was kind of like it just the timing of it and probably communication wasn't great, and we were just running short on food. There wasn't as much as we typically have, and people were eating, and I'm just sitting back. Right. And, and feeling the weight of it. And I'm thinking, oh, man, we're going to run out of food. This is this is terrible. It's an embarrassment. There's an awkwardness there. But what we need to understand that whatever embarrassment or awkwardness I, I might have felt w- would only be amplified in this kind of culture. This was what we refer to as a shame culture and, and meaning that there were certain social expectations that were put on people. And, and if you didn't live up to those social expectations, you brought shame not only upon yourself, but in, on your entire family. And it wasn't something that would just soon be forgotten. Uh, the, the guest would, would feel as if uh, you had done something disgraceful. They, they would likely consider that they had been treated with contempt. You invite all of us here. You, you announce that you're going to have this great celebration. We all travel and come to celebrate. And you don't even provide the food and, and the wine. People would look down on you, certainly. And it would serve to discredit your standing in society. A failure like that would not soon be forgotten. And so what, does hap- what happens? Mary comes to Jesus. Now, the fact that Mary comes to Jesus probably, again, indicates that there's some kind of friendship or some kind of relationship between Mary and these, these people. It wasn't her responsibility. It wasn't her wedding. Uh, it wasn't her responsibility to provide the wine, but she clearly had a concern for the host family. This really just shows Mary's compassion. Mary was a, a godly woman. Uh, she, she was... Uh, someone who who had compassion on others and some of you have wives like that and and mothers who they kind of see see what's going on they see the problem that's coming and there's something in them most of us men we're just sitting back like ain't my problem I ain't worried about it but but for some some reason maybe God made you that way for a lot of women they see that look what's about to happen they're going to have to stand up and announce that there's no wine. And so Jesus goes, and, and, and you can just imagine, with her eyebrows up in a, in a hushed whisper, she goes to Jesus, they have no wine. They're running out of wine. They, she, she goes to Jesus. Why, why did she come to Jesus? Well, it, it isn't likely that she was expecting him to do a miracle. John tells us this was the first miracle that Jesus did. You see, Jesus didn't grow up just doing miracles all the time, like they were party tricks or something for his family to be enjoying. The the miracles had a purpose. God gave him those miracles to publicly proclaim who he was and authenticate his identity and his message. Uh, So so that wasn't probably what what Mary was was thinking about. Some have suggested, and, and there's good reason to believe, that Joseph at this point had already died. And so perhaps just Mary as a mother... Jesus is her oldest son. He's he's the one that she depends on. 
He's the one that has gotten her out of scrapes before. When there's a problem, he's the one that she goes to. And so that's why she goes to him in this moment. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. He'll know what to do. He'll be able to help us resolve this problem. Not that he's going to do some miracle, but but he'll figure out something so that this family that we love don't experience this embarrassment. And then we see Jesus' response. And Jesus' response really is twofold. First of all, he he steps back and and he wants to offer some clarification about this relationship between he and his mother. Sometimes we have to clarify relationships, don't we? And if that's true of us, certainly it's true of Jesus as, as the Son of God. Up to this point, Jesus has lived his life in many respects as a normal son. Obviously, there were unique things about him. Uh, but as I said, he, he hasn't been teaching. He hasn't been going around doing a, a public ministry of, of miracles. He's a carpenter. He's been trained by his father as a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter. He was Mary's son. And so in many respects, up until this point, he has lived a normal life. But we know now in the Gospel of John that John is is communicating to us that Jesus is entering into a new phase of his life. He's entering into his public ministry. It started with the proclamation of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner. And, and he baptized Jesus, and he announces Jesus to the crowds. And now it continues with, with Jesus doing his first miracle. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's stepping back, and he's, he's letting Mary know that the dynamics of this relationship, we need to set some ground rules, so to speak. He says to her, woman, which if I said that to my mother, I wouldn't be here today at any point in in my life ever even as an adult male that Jesus was but this word woman is is not a word that has the disrespect that it sounds in our culture Uh, it was definitely a word that you wouldn't typically call your mom woman right but but it was a it was a respectful term but but it is a term that sort of distances a little bit he doesn't call her mother he says woman He's, he's just letting her know here there's a little bit of a distance here. And he, and he then asks the question, what does this have to do with me? And that, that is an idiom that is used in different places in the Bible. It was an idiom that was used in, in their language. It, it literally means what to me to you. So that's kind of, you know, we have funny idioms sometimes. Mind your beeswax, things like that. It doesn't make sense, but we all know what it means. And so what to me to you, what does that mean? Well, uh, it's an expression that, that Cruz says in his commentary. It's an expression that's found elsewhere in the New Testament, and it always indicates some sort of confrontation or rebuke, and it probably does here as well. It's a way, really, of saying, what do we have in common here? I don't think Jesus really is questioning the, his relationship to this wedding, like, hey, this isn't my responsibility. He, he's questioning this relationship here the dynamic of Mary's relationship to him. And that's why the King James Version translates this, I think rightly, woman, what have I to do with thee? He's not being disrespectful, but but he is saying, wait a minute, I want you to know, Mary, that, that I don't have an obligation to you 
in this matter. That, 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 there, that my life is, is about to embark upon a mission that I have received from my Heavenly Father. And that is going to be the, the primary focus of my life. And, and I want you to know that as I do that, some of your motherly prerogatives that, that you think you can kind of come and needle me to do this or that, those are going to have to be put on the back burner. Those are going to become of less importance as I seek to do the will of the Father. And so he says to her, woman, what do I have to do with thee? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And in the Gospel of John, we see that often Jesus, when he speaks, uh, he, he speaks in a way that it can really be taken on two levels. One is the human level, the person that's interacting with him, and then there's, there's sort of an undertone, there's a, there's a theological or a spiritual level to what he says too. And so when he says, woman, uh, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Uh, probably on a human level, people heard that and think, well, he's just telling Mary, hey, this ain't my wedding. This isn't my hour. This isn't my celebration. It's not my responsibility to provide wine for these people. That's probably what was heard on the human level. But again, the, the person who's reading the Gospel of John uh, and, and is an informed reader, we know that that expression, his hour, is one that is always used and it's used repeatedly uh, of the time when Jesus will go to the cross. It, it refers to his death and resurrection. That's his hour. And so what is he, he telling Mary? He, he, he's indicating that first of all, Providing wine is not his obligation. And, and secondly, he's sort of subtly pointing her to the fact that he's been called to something much greater. I have an hour. I'm, go, I'm, I'm not here to do party favors. Uh, I'm not here to, to amuse the crowd. I'm not here to even meet social expectations. I'm here to do the work of my Father. I have an hour that has been given to me. And that's my focus now. Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Jesus defines the relationship, but then, secondly, Jesus responds to the need, and he shows grace. It's kind of the perplexing thing when you read this story, isn't it? He says that to her, my hour is not come. He's definitely kind of pushing back these expectations that she had for her, and then she responds to the servants, do whatever he says, and he fulfills the request. He meets the need. Why does he do that? I think he does it as a token of his grace. He's doing it, first of all, because the Father had given him that work to do. That's what he said about his signs, his miracles. He did the works that the Father had given him to do. But, but secondly, he did it because it's just part of the nature of Jesus as the Son of God to, to graciously lavish gifts upon undeserving sinners. Isn't that the way that Jesus works? Jesus here wants us all to know that, that he's not doing this because he's obligated to do so. He's not doing this because his mother has required him to do it. He's going to provide something exquisite, as we'll see, and he does it simply out of grace. That's what grace is. It's not something that's deserved. It's not like, well, you ought to do this. You're expected to do this. Your mother wants you to do this. He's saying, I have no obligation to do this, and yet I'm going to provide this need for these sinful people. And I said that it was a lavish gift. Look how lavish the, the gift is. There are six water jars, 
six of them, and they hold 20 to 30 gallons each, and they fill them up to the brim, it says. That's 180 gallons of wine. And then when they take it to the master of the feast, uh, the one who's sort of responsible for organizing the whole thing, they bring it to him, and and it isn't just any run-of-the-mill wine. The the master of the feast tastes it, and he says, this is the best wine. You've served poor wine up to this point, and, uh, but, but typically, people will serve the very best that they have at first, and, and then they'll serve something of lesser quality. But he says here, you've saved the best for last. So this is a lavish gift. It's lavish in its amount. It's lavish in its quality. So come back to the setting. Imagine the nerves of the groom and his family who are about to, to be shamed. Can you imagine the pressure that they're, they're feeling? They have failed to prepare well. They are not prepared. They have failed to show the kind of hospitality that everyone there would have expected of them. And they'll never live this down. But then Jesus steps in, who's under no compulsion, and, and He lavishes His kindness on them in such a way that not only meets their expectation, but far exceeds them. Now, because Jesus has entered in, because Jesus has has shown His grace, the master of the feast is not going to have to stand up and announce to everyone, I'm sorry there's no wine. The, The festivities are over. You all go on your way. That is not going to happen because Jesus has graciously intervened in this situation. As we think about that, as we apply that, I just want to say what a picture of the Gospel What a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is so typical of the way Jesus works in the lives of his people. When we are faced with the shame of our sin, when we are faced with our inadequacies and with our failure, the grace of Jesus Christ intervenes and abounds. We stand in our sin and in our shame ready to be exposed for the foolish people that we are, And Jesus graciously intervenes on our behalf with a provision that simply overwhelms. That's the gospel. That's that's the gospel story. And Jesus is giving us the gospel here in, in this little miracle, in this sign that he has performed. You remember, we read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Just as those water jars were filled to the brim with wine, Jesus is full of grace. And it's a more than ample supply ready to be poured out on His people. Wave after wave of grace. Do you feel the shame of your sin this morning? Do you have that gnawing feeling in the pit of your soul as if you're going to be exposed for all to see? If people find out my sin, it it will bring such shame and reproach. I'll never live it down. Jesus can turn that shame into glory. 
If you felt that shame, the shame of your sin and the sense of impending judgment that is coming when it will be made known to all, then you need to do what Mary did here. You need to flee to Jesus Christ. You need to go to Him. He's the one that can resolve. And even if her heart wasn't completely right, even if she needed to be corrected, she understood something. She understood that her son had the ability to fix this problem. And so it is with us this morning. If you stand in the shame of your sin, you need to run to Christ You need to flee to Him. He will turn your shame into into celebration. Into glory, rather. That's our second thing that we see, and we'll move more quickly here, but Jesus turns contamination into celebration. We see, first of all, a, a highly symbolic detail. We notice in verse number six that these weren't just any water jars, were they? These were water jars that were used for the Jewish rite of purification. The Jewish rites of of purification. You remember that in the Old Testament, God gave many laws about what things were clean and what was unclean. And it was the great responsibility of God's people under the Old Covenant to to ensure that they maintained a a cleanness, a a, a purity, so that they would be able to go into the temple and offer sacrifices, so that they would be able to gather with God's people. And and God gave them all kinds of rules and regulations about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And He gave them certain washings that they were supposed to do. Uh, and, And all of that was for ritual purity. Of course, the the Jewish people, as we know, by the time of Jesus had elaborated on those, they had added additional rules and come up with particular customs. You needed to eat and you needed to wash when you entered your house or before you ate and and so forth. And that's what these pots are there for. They're, They're to be filled with water so that as guests are coming in, they can wash and be ritually pure. They, they really aren't that concerned. They didn't really fully understand the, the concept of germs, uh, but, but it was a ritual purity. And, and God gave them that, those rites and rituals because He was trying to teach them a spiritual truth. You know, preschool teachers do that. Kindergarten teachers do that, don't we? We, we give illustrations. We're, we're trying to teach kids with things that are, are visible, object lessons that they can look at and say, oh, okay, I get it. The object lesson isn't the point. What they're looking at, you're trying to teach them something of a greater reality. And so that's what the Old Testament was like. They were object lessons that God gave to His infant children. And He said, look at this. You need to do these things. And He was teaching them. Well, what is He teaching them with this whole idea of ritual purity? He's teaching them the idea of holiness. He's teaching them uh, the, the, the principle that they become defiled or impure because of their sin and that they need to be washed, that they need to be cleansed, they need to have their sins washed away so that they can enter into God's presence and so that they can have fellowship with Him and with His people and so that they can worship Him. That's what Jesus is teaching them. But the reality for many people in Jesus' day, as He's at this wedding, is that they never saw past that ritual. They never came to the point where they really, truly understood the spiritual reality of what was being conveyed. Most of them had not experienced the true cleansing in which God would wash away their sin. So what were they doing? They, They were continuing these dead rituals 
They, they, they were continuing to, to practice religious customs, but that's all that they were. There was no real meaning to them. There was no really purpose to them. Judaism in, in this day, in the day of Jesus, was, was largely an empty and meaningless religion. It had all of the forms. It had all of the customs, but there was no substance there. There was no reality there. That's why Jesus said to them at one point, your house is left unto you desolate. You have this beautiful house here, but it's empty. There, there's nothing to it. They had the form of, the, of religion, but not the substance. They washed their hands, but they didn't truly know what it was to be cleansed of their sins. And so Jesus does a highly symbolic act. He takes these jars which were used for this washing, this ritual purification. He takes these empty jars that were used to teach people about their need to be cleansed from sin and He fills them to the brim with the best wine. He, he takes these empty things that you, you wonder were they even being used were, were the people even practicing this because they had to fill it up with water it, it appears that they were they were empty and Jesus fills it to the brim with wine why, why is that important well wine holds significance in in the Old Testament prophecy wine was often included in prophecies in, in the Old Testament to predict a time when God would send the Messiah when God would send a savior and would bring salvation and forgiveness to His people. He, he was predicting a time when, when God's people would be able to celebrate because they had finally experienced the cleansing that all of these rituals pointed to. Listen to one of these prophecies. This is from Isaiah 25. And there are multiple prophecies. We'll just look at this one. Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast, a, 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 a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That's the good stuff. Of rich food, full of marrow, of well-aged wine, well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. That's Isaiah. And now here is Jesus saying, hey, look at all these ritual pots that you have for purification that pointed to your need for forgiveness. They pointed to the fact that you needed to be cleansed. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill them with full to the brim with the best wine, which symbolically points to this age in which God will at last redeem and bring salvation to His people. God will finally bring salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And when that happens, there's celebration. That's what the wine represents, right? 
When you're at a wedding and there's wine, it's a feast, it's a celebration. Everyone's happy, right? They're, they're celebrating. And that's why, that's why God in the Old Testament pictured this future time when we would know Him, when we would have forgiveness as this time when tears will be wiped away and there will be a lot of wine because we're going to be celebrating. We're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be happy that God has at last redeemed His people. He turns our contamination into celebration. What is Jesus signifying in this miracle? Well, one commentator says this, Jesus' conversion of such a large quantity of water into wine would indicate that the long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived. God Himself had drawn near to His people in the person and ministry of Jesus. And the fulfillment of that promise of abundant blessings was beginning to be fulfilled. He's giving us a sign that what was prophesied in the Old Testament has come. And when that happens, there's going to be wine. There's going to be celebration. It's going to be a party like never before. Just like people celebrate and rejoice at a wedding, so those who come to experience the forgiveness and cleansing of sin will rejoice with great joy. Do you have that joy in your life. We talk about the joy of the Lord. We talk about a, a joy that abides even through trials. We talk about a, a joy that you can experience and know even in the worst of worst. What kind of joy is there that, that can go through cancer or can go through the death of a loved one? What, what kind of joy is there that, that, can, uh, that can abound even in those moments of suffering? Well, it's the joy of knowing that you're right with God. It's the joy of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Have you experienced that cleansing this morning? If so, you can rejoice. Not only can you rejoice, but you ought to be rejoicing. Celebratory joy should be the marker, one of the markers of the Christian life. And I'm afraid too often it isn't. I'm, too, I'm afraid that too often we don't have anything that even comes close to the celebration of a wedding going on in our life. I'm afraid that far too often we walk around with a sour disposition. We're, we're grumbling. We're complaining. And Jesus is saying here, we, we ought to be celebrating. The, the time has come when Jesus has brought the forgiveness of sin. The blessings and the promises of God have come. And we're experiencing them right now. What, what have you got going on in your life? What troubles, what difficulties do you have going on? None of them outweigh the fact that these messianic promises, that these prophecies have come and they have landed on you as God's people. God's promises that, that the people of God waited for throughout generations, they have come to you and you freely experience them. They are abounding. They are filled up to the brim, so to speak. Let us be a people of rejoicing. Finally, in, in conclusion, we see here that Jesus turns our doubt into belief. That's what we see at verse 11 at the end of this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That was the result of it. John told us, and when we looked at John chapter 20, the sort of uh, thesis statement of the entire Gospel of John, he said that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He did a lot of other things, but I have written these that you might believe. 
That's the purpose of why he wrote this miracle. Why did he record the wedding at the Canaan of, uh, at Cana of Galilee? Because he wants you to believe. That was the result of these first disciples. Now, we know that they had already believed in one sense, hadn't they? They were already following Jesus. Nathan had, uh, or one of the disciples had already said to Jesus uh, that you, you're the Christ. And, and so they had already believed. But I think this must be indicating that they're believing again. Or, or in a sense that their faith has been strengthened. As, as they follow Jesus and now Jesus does this miracle, it, it, it strengthens their faith in who Jesus has said He is. And that's the point of these. So this morning, you have perhaps come here with some level of doubt. Even as a believer, we can have doubts, can't we? And maybe you're here this morning with some level of doubt. Perhaps you've been questioning Jesus. Was this man really the Son of God? Perhaps you've been struggling to believe that Jesus' grace can really remove the shame of your sin. Maybe you've been living with a, a fear of being exposed in front of everyone for who you really are. Perhaps in your heart you have continued to carry around the shame from past sin. Maybe even though you sing about Jesus cleansing you from every stain of sin, you still feel like you're filthy. Maybe as you continue to battle with sin, you've found yourself repeatedly stumbling and it leads you to question whether Jesus really will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Perhaps because of these struggles, you don't experience the fullness of joy and celebration that comes when you realize that Jesus has cleansed you from every sin. This sign was written that you might believe. May it be said today of the disciples at Union Baptist Church that when we saw this, when we heard this message, we believed in Him. May God give you faith this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You. We thank You for the grace of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that is an overflowing and abounding grace. God, I pray that You would cultivate in us because of that reality, a, a sense of joy and a sense of celebration that, that we have received forgiveness, that we have been cleansed of our sin because of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. I pray that each person this morning would personally know that joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.